If you've ever read through the book of Psalms, you may be familiar with a Hebrew term, selah. Um, it's an untranslatable word uh, that often comes at the end of a phrase in, in the middle of a psalm. Uh, I see that some of our uh, newer Bible translations have relegated the term to the footnotes, but it used to be printed in our English Bibles. You'd get a verse or two and then the word selah. As far as we can tell, it's a musical term. Uh, remember, the Psalms were originally songs, and the term Selah may indicate a pause, a break, a rest in the flow of music and poetry. Now, the book of Revelation includes a few Selahs, uh, pauses, breaks, rests from the main action and plot of the book. Today we come to Revelation chapter 14, and before John continues with the main plot of the book, he gives us a selah, a break, a rest, and we need one. We've just come from chapter 13, where we read about the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. The rest of chapter 14 will include some of the most horrific imagery in the entire book, and so John gives us a break. He moves from looking at the earth and the things that are taking place and will take place, and he invites us to look upward. As one Bible commentator points out, although John is allowed to penetrate into the mystery of iniquity and to discern the black secrets of evil in Revelation chapter 13, he's not allowed to dwell upon them. For there can be an unhealthy, morbid preoccupation with disease and tribulation and sin. As we look into the horrifying depths of the pit, an angel breaks in upon our contemplation and bids us to look upward. And what reward there is in that heavenward look. At the beginning of Revelation chapter 15, there is a similar silah. A break. Before John describes the seven final plagues that come on the earth, he again pauses and looks upward. And I thought it might be helpful for us to consider these two upward looks together because they're very similar and to give them a sermon on their own, otherwise they could just get lost in the details of the other visions surrounding them. So let's have a look. Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 to 5, and then Revelation chapter 15, verses 2 to 4. So starting in, verse, in, in chapter 14. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They followed the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. 
No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. In chapter 15, verse 2, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is God's word. So remember that John is writing to men and women who are about to face the most horrific persecution. In chapter 13, we saw that they are facing the great outpouring of Satan's wrath through the power of the state and the power of false religion. And as John says in that chapter, this calls for patient endurance. One of the things that helps us to endure patiently is a vision of how things are going to work out in the end, which is what these two visions are all about. John shows his readers a picture of the very end, something that he'll describe in greater detail in the final chapters of the book. But these pictures are, sorry, rather, these pictures of the end are also descriptions of the people of God in the end. John sees this group of people, and there are a number of things that John tells us about the redeemed people of God who stand with the Lamb beside the glassy sea. And this is important for us, because the most vital question for us today is this, am I among their number? Do I belong to this group? When the roll is called up yonder, will I be there? As Pastor Darrell Johnson puts it in his book on Revelation, am I one of the Lamb's people? And if the answer is yes, am I living in such a way that others will know that I am one of the Lamb's people? In these verses, the Apostle John lists seven characteristics of those who belong to the Lamb. Seven distinguishing marks that need to be present in ever-increasing measure in our lives if we truly are the Lamb's people. And let me start with the most important one first, because if I don't start here, you may get the wrong impression. Firstly, John tells us that the Lamb's people are those who are redeemed. Chapter 14, verse 3. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. Now, we came across this group back in chapter 7, if you'll recall. And remember that in chapter 7, the redeemed people of God are described from two different perspectives. First, John hears their number, 144,000, which is a perfect number. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. 
And it expresses the fact that this is the new people of God, the new Israel, whose number is complete. Not one is missing. But secondly, having heard their number, John then sees a great multitude that no one can count from every tribe, nation, language, and people. And it expresses the fact that this group does indeed consist of Jews and Gentiles from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. Their true number is known by God alone. In a similar way, here in chapter 14, we are told that these 144,000, this perfect group, are those who have been redeemed from the earth, which again refers to the complete people of God who've been purchased from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is the entirety of God's people from every age, all those who have been redeemed. Now, this word redeemed or redemption comes to us from a rather unpleasant location in the ancient world. It comes to us from the slave market. There you would find men and women who were enslaved, trapped, stuck in their situation. Some of them would have sold themselves into slavery to get out of debt. Others would have been kidnapped or would have been the plunder from war. But they were helpless. They were someone else's property. They had no rights of their own. Their very existence depended on the whim of their master. Their position was very perilous. The only hope that they had was that one of their relatives or friends would come and pay the redemption price that would allow them to go free. A redemption was a price paid to free a slave. A modern term for this would be the word ransom. You'll all have seen movies where someone is kidnapped and the kidnappers phone the family and they demand a ransom to set the person free. It's the same idea. And the Bible often speaks about the fact that we are slaves, that we have been taken captive, that we have in fact sold ourselves to sin. As one writer puts it, in the dark little dungeon of our own ego, we are prisoners of our self-centeredness, prisoners of our guilt, prisoners of the wrath of God that is upon us because of our inexcusable guilt. And our only hope is that someone will set us free. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has paid the price to set us free. And it's not the payment of money. As the Apostle Peter reminds us, he says, You know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. God himself, in the person of his son Jesus, paid the price to set us free. And can I ask you, do you know that personally? 
Do you personally know the truth of Ephesians chapter 1, that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us? And if not, what's preventing you from accepting that today? You see, this is the most important characteristic of the Lamb's people. You mustn't get the impression that if we have these other six characteristics in our lives, then we become acceptable to God, thereby becoming his people. No, we're redeemed, we're rescued, we're saved freely by what Jesus has done for us. And then, if we accept that, those next characteristics become more and more evident in our lives. And if we find that they are not in our lives, then we need to question whether or not we've understood and accepted Jesus' offer of redemption. So secondly, the Lamb's people are faithful to him. That, I think, is the meaning behind that strange phrase in chapter 14, verse 4. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. Now, this cannot be taken literally. Otherwise, you would have to say that the Lamb's people, the redeemed, consist only of males, and presumably it would have to be only single males as well. Now, this is a metaphor, a picture. It's not intended to be misogynistic, anti-woman in any way either. It's important to remember that in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was considered to be God's virgin bride. And so on the occasions when Israel fell into idolatry, she was said to be playing the harlot, committing adultery with other lovers, with other gods. The same picture is used in the New Testament. The church is described as the bride of Christ. And again, it's possible for Christ's bride to be led astray. So in 2 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul writes to Christians in that city, and he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's the imagery here in Revelation 14. The Lamb's people, the redeemed, are those who then remain pure spiritually. They're not unfaithful to God or the Lamb. They are indeed the bride of Christ. And this picture becomes important as we move on into chapter 17, where the powers and the principalities and the systems of the world are pictured as a great prostitute. And we're told that with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. The Lamb's people have not defiled themselves through prostitution with the world. And folk, is that you? And is that me? Are we wholeheartedly faithful to God and to his ways? Or are we worshipping and serving him part-time while we continue our love affair with the world? Do the gods of money and pleasure and power have a greater allure over us than Christ does? 
The Lamb's people are faithful to him. Pastor Daryl Johnson points out that it was not always so. And that's important to say, it was not always so. There was a time when every one of the 144,000 was in love with Babylon, drinking to one degree or another of her adulteries. But one day the Lamb broke through and won them to himself, and slowly but surely they left their former lovers behind. May that be true of us. Thirdly, the Lamb's people follow him. Chapter 14, verse 4, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now that little phrase, they follow the Lamb, is an entire sermon series on its own because this is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. The New Testament actually only uses the word Christian three times to describe us. And even then, it's only to identify this group of people in terms of how the world described them. The New Testament consistently speaks about us being disciples or followers, apprentices of Jesus. That was the original call of Jesus while he was on earth. He said to Peter and Andrew and James and John while they were repairing their nets beside the Sea of Galilee, come follow me. It was an invitation to become his apprentices, to leave their families and occupations and spend three and a half years with him, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, you and I can't do that in the exact same way that they did, but the principles of what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus still hold true for us. We are called to be with Jesus, becoming like him, and doing the things that he did. That's what the Christian life is all about, and it will cost us everything. If nobody's ever told you that before, you're learning it today. Being with Jesus, thereby becoming like him, takes place through certain daily practices and regular rhythms that we actually see in the life of Jesus himself. Things like Bible reading and prayer, worship, silence and solitude, fasting, stewardship, simplicity, evangelism, fellowship, corporate worship and study. And perhaps, if you've never done this before, a first step for you today would be to take up one or more of those practices. Or if you're already practicing some of these, then to add a new practice that you haven't tried before. Perhaps study, or simplicity, or fasting. And another step in us being with Jesus, becoming like him, might be to increase some of those practices. So if you've been reading your Bible once a week, increase it to twice a week. If you've only been praying for five minutes, increase it to ten minutes. Being with Jesus leads to our becoming like him and over time leads us to start doing the kinds of things that he would do if he were in our situation. Things like forgiveness and gentleness, and the other things that we see in his life. We seek to follow Jesus, not just on Sunday for a few minutes, or for a few minutes at the beginning of the day, but to follow him wherever 
he goes. Part of that as well is following him wherever he goes, not saying to him, Lord Jesus, I'm just going to go off over here and I'm going to do these few things and I'm going to take part in this activity and you will come with me, won't you? It's following him wherever he goes, which is the safest place to be. I was reading this morning in Joshua chapter 2 how Joshua calls the people to follow the Ark of the Covenant where God is because as he says to them, you've never been this way before. And you and I, as we go into this week, have never been this way before, but we are perfectly safe if we follow the Lamb in everything. Next, that Lamb's people are totally devoted to him. Chapter 14 and verse 4. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. Now, in the Old Testament, that word firstfruits can refer to the first part of a harvest that is offered to God in anticipation of a more full and final harvest at the end. But the word can simply also refer to an offering or a gift, something devoted to God. So, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 2, God says, remember using the picture of a marriage, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. It's the whole nation that are special and devoted to God. Notice the words firstfruits and devotion and holy are all together here. You and I are to be the firstfruits, devoted, holy to God. Holiness means to be separate. My toothbrush is holy. It is separated to me. It is separated to the brushing of my teeth and separated from digging in the garden, cleaning my daughter's shoes or brushing the hamster's teeth. And in the same way, we separate ourselves from certain activities because we are separate to God and to his particular use. I think the best practical application of this is found in Romans chapter 12 where the Apostle Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, your very selves, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And we offer our lives, as we've seen, recognizing that he's already offered himself for us. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, You are not your own. You were bought at a price, redeemed. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This past week, I read a quotation from William Law, which completely ruined my week, so let me ruin yours as well. William was born in 1686. Uh, He was a Church of England priest, and he wrote this in a famous little book, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. He said, devotion signifies a life given or devoted to God. Such people consider God in everything, serve God in everything, and make every aspect of their lives holy by doing everything in the name of God 
and in a way that conforms to God's glory. For any ways of life, any employment of our talents, whether of our bodies, our time or money, that are not strictly according to the will of God, that are not done to his glory, are simply absurdities and failings. That is a life that is devoted to God. Number five, the Lamb's people are utterly sincere in their profession of faith and love towards God. Chapter 14, verse 5, no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. This is in contrast to those described in the final chapter of Revelation who do not enter the city of God. John says, outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. You'll see throughout the book of Revelation how John is extremely angry with those who pretend to be something they are not, whether they're pretending to be apostles and or not, or pretending to be disciples and or not, or are pretending to be prophets and are not. We're to stay away from lies and falsehood, because as Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, the devil is a liar and the father of lies. And when we lie, we take on his character, not the character of our true father who always speaks the truth. And with him is no darkness at all. And we seek to be blameless. As one writer points out, to be blameless means to walk in integrity, which involves realizing that we are sinners and that we regularly sin, but coming clean with God about it. The blameless person is not perfect. The blameless person is the person who has confessed his or her sin, putting it, putting it under the blood of the Lamb so that no one can blame him or her anymore. And again, is that you? Is that me? Are we walking in the light as he is in the light? Are we making progress in becoming more like Jesus? Or are we still struggling with the same sins we struggled with two years ago? Are we being authentic in our relationships here, being honest with one another? And is there at least one person in my life with whom I can be totally honest and open? Number six, the Lamb's people are victorious. Chapter 15 and verse 2. And I saw standing beside the sea those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. We've looked at this a number of times in some of our previous sermons. It's so important to remember that we are victorious in the same way that Jesus was victorious. How did Jesus win the victory? By dying. And following the Lamb wherever he goes means following him towards suffering and death. For some, that may mean persecution for the faith and martyrdom. But for most of us, it will mean a daily dying to ourselves and living for Jesus. Saying yes to things that are hard to do, like fasting and reading the Bible and praying sometimes. And saying no to some things that are easy to do being petty and jealous and angry. 
As one writer points out, this group do not follow the Lamb as he strolls around heaven, but they follow his life and instructions while he was on earth. And while he was on earth, Jesus said to us, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. And finally, number seven, the Lamb's people are known by the song that they sing. Both of these visions describe God's people singing. I don't know if it's the same song in both visions, but there's actually a lot of singing that goes on in the book of Revelation because Christians are a people who sing. In chapter 14 and verse 3 we read, And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. Now, why is this a song that only the redeemed can sing? When I was in Sunday several decades ago, we used to sing a hymn that answers that question. Do you remember it? There's a friend for little children. Remember? The third verse of that hymn went like this. There's a song for little children above the bright blue sky, a song that will not weary, though sung continually, a song which even angels can never, never sing. They know not Christ as Savior, but worship him as King. In chapter 5, the angels can sing about the song. They say, you were slain, and with your blood you purchased people for God. But they cannot sing that from personal experience. Only the redeemed, you and I, can sing this song. In chapter 15, we read that those who had been victorious held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. I'm presuming that this is another picture because my harp's playing skills are quite limited. But remember that after God had saved his people out of Egypt, after he'd drowned their enemies in the Red Sea, Moses and the people of Israel sang a song about God's deliverance. You can read it in Exodus chapter 15. God is a God who saves, they sing. Exodus 15 was sung by the Jewish people when they commemorated the Exodus at Passover every year. They sang this song as the Passover lambs were being slaughtered. Now the redeemed sing the song of salvation with deeper insight and meaning because Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been slain and brought about the salvation of the world. And then in chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, we read the lyrics of the song. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Pastor John Piper points out that a congregation learns its theology and takes it deep down into the crevices of their souls by the songs that they sing, not just by the preaching that they hear. 
We get our theology, not just from the preaching that takes place here, but by the songs that we sing. And so we need to be careful and discerning about the lyrics of the songs and the hymns that we sing. Notice two characteristics then of the song of the Lamb that have important implications for our own worship, whether that's private or corporate. Firstly, this song is jam-packed full of Bible verses. Each and every phrase of this hymn comes from the scriptures. There are quotations from Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Malachi, and numerous psalms. The best praise and worship songs are those that sing God's words back to him, or at the very least are solidly based on God's word. Let me quote Daryl Johnson again on this point. He says, the Lamb's people sing the words of Scripture because they want to sing to God accurately, rightfully, and in a manner consistent with who God really is. God has revealed himself in the words of Scripture, and we can best reply to God using the words and phrasing God has used. The Lamb's people do not sing to God out of their own imagining of who God is. They sing to God out of God's self-revelation. That's so important. Every now and again someone says, well, I like to think of God like this. (laughs) That would be like you saying to me, Andrew, you know, I like to think of you as being a jock, a real basketball player, one of those hunter-gatherer type folk. (laughs) I'd have to say, that's not me. It doesn't matter what you think of how I am. This is who I am. In the same way, we can't say, well, I, I think of God like this. God has revealed himself in Scripture, and that is the way that we need to worship him in spirit and truth. But secondly, notice that even those who sing this song, even though those who sing this song are described as victors, they are those who've been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They've been victorious even to the point of death. Yet there isn't a single word in this song about their victory or their achievement. Seven times the words you or yours are used and the words I, me, my, mine, myself are completely absent from this song. The best praise and worship songs are those that celebrate and exalt God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, his name, his character, and his saving deeds. I'm not sure if this is a true story. Uh, I couldn't figure out uh, whether it was based on history or mainly just uh, myth. But the story is told about how as a young lawyer, Abraham Lincoln went along to a slave auction to see what went on there. And he was deeply distressed to see black Americans being chained like cattle and auctioned off to the highest bidder. At one point, a young woman was brought to the auction block and bidding started. Lincoln watched as various people made their bids for this human life. And eventually, he put in a bid of his own. His bid was counted by another, he bid higher, was counted again. Finally, he outbid all of the others and the auctioneer proclaimed sold. The slave traders then brought the young woman off the block and set her at Lincoln's feet. He reached down, he unlocked her chains and said, you're free. 
The young woman looked up at Lincoln with a puzzled expression on her face and said, what does it mean to be free? Lincoln replied, it means that you can think anything you want to think, you can say anything you want to say, you can go wherever you want to go. The reality of her newfound freedom began to sink in, and with tears streaming down her cheeks, the young woman replied, then I will go with you. You and I have been redeemed, saved, set free by the precious blood of Jesus. And in loving response, we now remain faithful to him. Follow him wherever he goes. We devote ourselves to him with utter sincerity. We gain the victory by dying to ourselves and living to him. And then we sing his song of salvation right now to a world who needs to know it. And one day in eternity, as we see Jesus face to face and the full awesomeness of what he has done for us finally becomes apparent to us. Let's pray together.